If you have a Bible, you can turn to the book of 2 John, the second letter of the Apostle John. Our New Testament reading will be uh, the whole letter, all 13 verses. Lend your attention, this is the very word of God. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find that some of your children are walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. You can turn in the Old Testament to the book of Micah. Come to the final oracle in the book of Micah. It is, as in the other cycles, a salvation oracle. That is the climactic salvation oracle. And so we'll start with verse 9 and we'll read to the end of the chapter in verse 20. This is the very word of God. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me, he will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the street. A day for the building of your walls. In that day the boundary shall be far extended. 
In that day they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of an orchard. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as the days of old, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths, their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Who is God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depth of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers. From the days of old. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Join me in prayer. Father, attend now this reading and preaching of your word. I magnify your name, O Lord. I sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. The spirit of truth attends this word, ministering to us even now as Christ intercedes on our behalf to ensure that the full portion which he has purchased for us comes to pass. We ask that you would build us up, that you would humble us, that you would correct us, that you would save us, Lord, as we receive this word by the gracious ministry of the spirit, even now. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the summer is almost over. I guess it is over. I had to put sweatpants on this morning. <laughs> Children, over the summer, did you get a chance to see any fireworks? Did you see any fireworks over the summer? Maybe on the 4th of July, or maybe at the Minnesota State Fair, if your parents let you stay up late enough, I heard them from my house. They kept me awake. I really like fireworks. Do you like fireworks? Fireworks are big and they're beautiful. And what comes at the end of a fireworks show? What brings it to a conclusion? What's the grand finale? And what happens in the grand finale? The biggest and the brightest and the loudest fireworks go off. I've seen some impressive grand finales in my short day. They leave you in awe at the colors, at the size, at the sound. It's a wonder to behold as light fills the sky. That's how Micah closes his book, with the grand finale of the excellencies of our God. 
the excellencies of our God on display in all of his works, in both salvation and judgment. And there's four main fireworks that he sends up, and each of them contain the dual display of God's justice and his mercy. His mercy extended to those who wait upon the Lord. His mercy extended on the people of his inheritance. And his justice extended to those who set themselves against the one who is most excellent and lovely. For that dual display of justice and mercy really gets to the heart of who God is, if we can say it that way. And I trust we can because scripture says it that way. God is just and merciful. God is righteous and compassionate. That's the astonishing revelation that Moses encounters in Exodus 34, isn't it? As the Lord passes him by, he declares the wonder of this reality that doesn't quite fit for our understanding, does it? How can he be merciful, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and yet at the same time, by no means, excuse the guilty, pass by the wicked. This is the glory of who God is, that he is both merciful and just. And this is the glory that he has revealed in full in the Lord Jesus Christ. Where God's justice and mercy are plainly on display as the one who forgives sin because he bore sin. As the one who will take those whom he has purchased and extend judgment upon all those who have rejected the gracious and glorious offer of the gospel. This is the glory of God. This is the grand finale as the heavens fill with the splendor, the light of both his mercy and his justice. So we can consider this grand finale, this final oracle of salvation and the wonder of our God, for there is no one like him. Let's consider the four works, the four fireworks. First, God vindicates. Second, God grows his kingdom. Third, God shepherds his people. And fourth, God removes sin. First, God vindicates his people. Verses 9 and 10. Micah opens, I will bear the indignation of Yahweh. What is the indignation of Yahweh? And why does he bear it? Well, the indignation is plain. It's all of the difficulty that he's been experiencing as his tenure as a prophet. Recall where we left Micah last week. He is reviled and betrayed by his closest family and friends. Micah speaks of God's justice. He speaks of God's judgment. He speaks of God's mercy. And all those around him say, where is your God? But it's not just the mocking, although that would have been dreadfully difficult, wouldn't it? To insist on the truth of something and have the insistence upon that truth be the very reason for which you are reviled. One thinks of the beloved son. 
It's not just the mocking, though. It's the entire landscape of difficulty crashing down upon the, uh, the prophet. It's the difficulty of living in a godless land. Of seeing Israel's leaders and seeing a corrupt horde from the greatest to the least of them. It's seeing God's people being led astray, meaning willingly following these corrupt leaders. It's the difficulty of watching one's home destroyed in the coming judgment. It's the difficulty of exile, the likes of which would have been too horrible to fully explain. All of that is the indignation of Yahweh. Now note that most of that has a human cause. The treachery of friends, the wickedness of leaders, the movement of nations resulting in exile. But Micah looks through all of those human causes and says, this is the indignation of Yahweh, and I will bear it in patience. Why? Why does he resolve to bear this difficulty in patience? Well, he gives two plain reasons. The first is rather surprising. Micah says, because I have sinned against God. That's how verse 9 continues. I will bear the indignation of Yahweh, for I have sinned against him. Now, in one sense, he's innocent. In one sense, he's faithful. He's been delivering God's word as a true servant this whole time. And it's for that very reason that he's being mocked by friends and family. Saying, where is this God that you proclaim? Why doesn't he act? That's something many Christians experience, isn't it? We say Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Jesus Christ forgives sin. To which the world says... Ha! A scornful laughing, saying, where is this Jesus? I'm doing just fine. I don't need him. I don't need your God. How painful that is. To have the truth, which is your hope, be the cause of mocking, scorn, contempt, distaste. From those who are nearest and dearest to us. How painful it would have been for Micah to be the servant of God and yet reviled for that very fact. But note Micah's response. He says, with respect to man, I'm innocent. However, I know that before God, I deserve far worse than this because of my sin. And thus I will bear this indignation impatiently. But there's another reason he's willing to bear this impatience. It's because he's confident that God's truth will win the day. He's confident that God will vindicate his servants. That's how verse 9 ends. I will bear this impatience until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. What does Micah mean by this? Well, two things. First, he's been announcing God's word of judgment, but it hasn't yet come to pass. But it will. He's confident that God will do the very thing that he said he was going to do. And this will be a vindication, not just of the truth, but of the one who has spoken God's truth. Micah is confident, not in himself, but that God keeps his word. But it's not just the word of judgment. 
It's also the word of salvation. Micah says that there are going to be a kingdom of light. Micah says there's going to be an assembly of the righteous. Micah says that as far as the eye can see, there's going to be a people that proclaims the excellencies of this God. God has promised this day of peace and prosperity. He has promised this day of light, eternal, dawning in perfection. And I am confident that he will bring it to pass. And so I can bear this present darkness in patience. One can endure quite a lot if one knows it's going to end. One of our members assured me of that recently. Maybe he thought I was having a tough time or something. Sort of a buck up, buddy. <laughs> it's a common saying. It's crept its way into our pop popular culture. Pain is temporary, but glory is forever. They're not talking about the right kind of glory there, but they're not far from the Christian experience. The psalmist himself says something similar. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. He's sure that it ends. He's sure that the darkness ends. He's sure that the weeping ends. And in that certainty, he can endure in patience. And if Micah was sure that the light was coming, if the psalmist was sure that the morning was coming, we are more sure for the light of the world has stepped down into darkness. And in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of morning has dawned upon a world marred by death and sin and misery. The sun has shone upon the world of men in the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. For it was Jesus Christ who was the true servant reviled by the world for the very truth that he spoke. What does he say? The light has come, but men have loved darkness because their, world, their works are wicked. He was the true servant reviled for being the light, reviled for being the truth, and he was vindicated on the third day. And he was exalted above every name and tongue and person when he took his place at the right hand of heaven. And this is our hope and our stay. It is not a faint good wish that the future will be bright. It is a certainty that it will be light because light has already dawned in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his resurrection. And in the meantime, we look upon the sad state of this world and we acknowledge that we have sinned. That's what Micah does, isn't it? We properly lament a disintegrating world around us and with good reason, but so often we overlook that it's our own greed, our own lust, our own cruelty, our own deceitfulness that are bound up with the world's dissolution. And is there any pain or heartbreak, iteration of misery that washes over us that it's not fitting that we respond, I will bear this in patience, for I have sinned against my maker, and I deserve far worse than anything I will receive in this sad life. But we also wait in hope, for in Christ, God has not allowed our sin to have the final word. 
We know that God's word is true because Christ has been raised from the dead. But we also know that God's word is true because God has poured out his spirit and is even now gathering a people, a kingdom from every tribe and tongue and nation, which goes on to this very day, which is his next excellency. God grows his kingdom. That's what he goes on to say in verses 11 through 13. Verse 11, a day for building your walls. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. Mike envisions a new kingdom. One that is continuous with the old, the building or the rebuilding of the walls. But also far exceeding it in terms of glory and excellence. The expanding of the boundaries. Micah sees beyond the broken walls and the scattering of the people in exile, and he sees a day of growth, a day of glory in the filling up and the extending of the borders. In fact, the borders will encompass the whole world. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. Like has already spoken of the day when the nations would stream into Jerusalem. The Lord Jesus Christ said the Son of Man must be raised up, lifted up, so that he might draw all men to himself. This comprehensive scope of the kingdom of God on display in the Son is the very thing that Micah glimpses beyond the judgment, beyond the destruction, and this to the glory of God. Why is it so fitting that the nations come and worship? First, because it extols the magnitude of God's grace and mercy. It wasn't just a small tribe that received it. It was indeed all man made recipients of God's saving love. But it's also fitting that the nations worship because God is worthy of such comprehensive adoration. His excellency, his worth, his splendor is too great to be restricted to one tribe, to one people group. That's why we put art in museums, isn't it? Why do people continue to travel, to pay, to see the works of Michelangelo or Rembrandt or Van Gogh? Why do people continue to read Homer and Virgil and Shakespeare and Tolstoy? Because only a few are masters. There are only a few great ones worthy of such a scope of attention. The former days are marked by many great ones who are worthy of attention regarding their beautiful works. These days are marked by the great work that has been done in the Lord Jesus Christ. The most excellent act of creation and glory and splendor on display in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If many have enjoyed Ilya, the Iliad and Michelangelo's David, how many more will enjoy the forgiveness and the life that comes in the Lord Jesus Christ? The former are the gifts of artists. The latter is the gift of God, the Creator, whose genius is unsurpassed and whose splendor is only faintly flickered in all beautiful works. How wide should the scope of enjoyment be for an object of infinite worth? 
How wide should the scope of enjoyment be for an object of infinite worth? The answer is comprehensive. It should be a comprehensive scope of enjoyment. And that's the scope of the kingdom that Micah envisions here. Hordes coming unto the Lord from every nation. And not only that, but those who reject the Lord blot it out. For to do so is obscene. To not worship this God is grotesque, foul, monstrous, you might even say. And you see the magnitude of mercy on display here juxtaposed with the truth of what people really deserve. Verse 13, the earth shall become a desolation on account of its inhabitants from the fruit of their works. If life and building of a new kingdom is the fruit of his new creation work, it finds its stunning contrast in the fruit of our work of destruction, in the desolation that is the fruit of such sinful works. Note the contrast. Sin deserves one thing, but God's people have received the promise of grace. The world deserves destruction, but many have received mercy. It is both the justice and the mercy that serve God's glory, that showcase the wonder of who He is. Why are some brought into this kingdom? Why are some brought to worship the Almighty and be established as objects of His favor? purely because of God's grace and mercy extended. Those who are gathered into the kingdom of Christ are, done, are brought in not because of what they have done, but because of what Christ has done. And the rest, Micah says they receive justice. The earth is destroyed on account of its inhabitants from the fruit of their works. Those destroyed receive God's righteous wrath. As R.C. Sproul so compellingly pointed out, the elect receive mercy. The wicked receive justice. God is just to all. There is no injustice in God. And his doings will reflect the full glory of his name. So again, we're struck by the plainness of God's word. Come unto Christ and receive mercy because of the works of his hands. That's the gracious offer of the gospel. Come unto Christ and receive God's grace and love and favor because of what the Son has done on behalf of sinners. The only other alternative is stand on your own merit and receive the justice that the works of your hand deserve. And it's plain what they deserve. It is desolation. It's destruction. And this in accord with God's holy justice. For God's excellencies are on display both in the growth of the kingdom of grace and in the execution of perfect justice which we also see on display in the next picture of His Excellency. God shepherds His people, verses 14 through 17. 
Mike envisions a wilderness in which God's people are situated. But they are situated there as God's people. And thus he prays that God would shepherd them. That's what verses 15, 14 and 15 read. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a for forest in the midst of an orchard. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. You get a little liturgy here, actually. You even see the dialogical principle at work. In worship, we have a dialogical principle. Do you know what that is? It's a dialogue between God and man. When we worship, we meet with God. We speak with God. We speak to Him in our responses. We listen to Him as He speaks. And that's what you get here. We see a prayer Micah offers on behalf of the people. And it is a prayer based upon promises that God has made. He says, shepherd your people. What has God already promised to do in this? Think of the great passage from Micah 5 about the coming shepherd. The promise that he's going to shepherd his people. Here Micah prays that God will do that very thing. He offers a prayer founded upon God's promise. Which is an excellent reminder for us. That we are on sure and solid ground when we ask God to do the things that he has promised to do. Some people would see this as utterly unnecessary. Well, if he's promised to do it, why do I have to ask him? No, no, he's promised to do it so that we may ask in confidence. This is the wisdom of God on display. And this is what we see on display here in Micah. God promises to shepherd his people. And Micah prays that he's going to shepherd his people. And the landscape in which he shepherds them is treacherous. But mark what God says in response. Hear the dialogue. Micah prays and God responds. That's what he does in verse 15. This is God responding. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. God is here saying, yes, I will do the very thing that you just asked me to. Yes, I will shepherd my people just as I did in the Exodus. Just as I did through that treacherous wilderness of scorpions and snakes. But once more we see that this new act will exceed the glory and the splendor of the last. For here it's not God's people groaning under the yoke of slavery in one place. But it's God's people scattered to the four winds. <laughs> it's not just God's people oppressed by the burden of needing to make bricks without straw. It's God's people being harassed by the wickedness of of the world as his servant Daniel and the four and the three lads were. And yet God promises to shepherd them even there. Not in the wilderness of Sinai, but in the wilderness of sin and misery. And by highlighting that he had shown his people wonders of old, he is saying, in effect, is anything too hard for me? Is there anything that my outstretched arm and power cannot accomplish? If I turn light into darkness, water into blood, summon frogs and flies, hail, indeed the very spiritual powers of darkness, what is too difficult for me? And if I did all of these things to bless you, are you not yet convinced that I am favorably disposed towards you? Though you 
are a sinful people. The Exodus event is set forth as a plain demonstration both of God's power and his willingness to save his people. Psalm 66, 5 through 7. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds towards the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever. Now it is not the exodus chiefly to which we look, whereby we would glimpse God's incomprehensible favor towards the children of man. But it is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the incarnation. It is his life as atonement for sin. It is his resurrection and ascension and the reestablishment of man in the position and favor of God. What more can God say or do or give to prove that he is well disposed towards man? What more could he do to demonstrate to a sinful world that he is not just well disposed towards man, but he is well disposed towards sinners in willing to be reconciled to them by the provision and the giving of the beloved son? Will you continue to reject him, O sinner? It is not because he has failed to prove that he is good. It is not because he has failed to show that he forgives. It is because your love affair with the darkness has overwhelmed you and blinded you to even such a marvelous light as this. And for those who continue to reject the Son, the state is terrible and the end is worse. For God subjects the enemies of his people to shame. For they have aligned themselves with darkness and have become darkness. That's what he says here. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. The enemies of God are identified with the ancient enemy, the ancient serpent the dragon of old. They're mute and they're deaf like snakes. <laughs> they're subject to the curse of the snake, abject shame and humiliation. And they're brought to acknowledge what they refused to acknowledge in life, namely that there is one God, the true and living God, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. All of the grotesque arrogance of man that defiles the world, all of it will be stripped away on the day of Jesus Christ. All of those who posture themselves with that bombast circumstance that makes people believe that they are something before God will be rendered null and void as the enemies of Christ are shown to be what they really are. And that's perhaps what's most terrifying about this text. Will you get a little bit heady with me for a moment? You're like, Michael, haven't you been heady this whole time? <laughs> Just a little bit heady. Notice that on that day, people will be seen and known for what they really are. Here it's dragons 
who come cowering out of their strongholds. I don't know what the resurrection form of the ungodly is going to be. Jesus says it plain in John 5, all are going to be raised from the dead, even the wicked, unto everlasting punishment. But I suspect the resurrection of the ungodly will be monstrous. For the principle in Scripture is, on the day of new creation, the external will match the internal. Those who have eternal life now will be configured entirely in life and light and glory. Those who are corruption all in all now, what will they be? I don't know. But it will not be beautiful. One wonders if it will even be human in any recognizable sense. Here it is dragons. Dragons who come trembling forward. Whatever the case is, the word is severe and sobering. Once more, God's justice is terrible, but God's elect will delight in it because it will showcase who he is. But now is the day of favor. Now is the day of grace. Now is the day of mercy. Now is the day God is to be had as a reconciling God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's how he ends. As the God who forgives is made known in its clearest terms. Verses 18 through 20. The book of Micah reaches its magnificent climax with a hymn of praise. It states the excellency of God plainly and wonderfully on display. He forgives our sins. He removes our sins. Verses 18 through 20. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Let the plainness of our plight and God's provision be seen and adored. Who is the true enemy? What's the real problem? <laughs> God's people are always vulnerable to mistaking this fundamental question. Even Israel. It's not Egypt. Egypt's not the real problem. It's not Assyria. Assyria is not the real problem. It's not Babylon. Why is Babylon coming? Why is Assyria coming? Because of your sin. They're a secondary matter. They're not the primary concern. It's not even Micah's neighbor or friend or wife or children. All these people who are mocking him. Who's the true enemy? The true enemy is sin. The true enemy is the corrupt heart that dwells in each and every one of us left to ourselves. Whereby we set ourselves against the Lord of glory. Acting out of which we crucified the Lord of glory. It's sin that oppresses us. It's sin that pursues us. It's sin's destructive power that generates our misery. It's sin's demand for justice that generates our fear of the judge. 
For what do we deserve as sinners? It says it right here. What do we deserve as sinners? Where's the sin thrown? Into the judgment waters. The waters that swallowed Pharaoh's army were the same waters that swallowed the world in judgment in the flood. It's the judgment water. We deserved to be swallowed with those who mocked Noah. We deserve to be swallowed with those who set themselves up in Pharaoh's army against the true and living God. But what has he done instead? He has not thrown us into the heart of the sea. He has thrown our sins into the heart of the sea. For God's people, he does not deal with us as our sins rightly deserve because he has dealt with our sin in the Lord Jesus Christ. God's justice and mercy meeting perfectly. God does not wink at sin. God does not indulge sin. Rather, he removes sin in making his son a sacrifice for sin. God forgives sin because Christ bore sin. God extends mercy because Christ bore justice. We receive life because Christ purchased it with his death. Who is like this God who would treat corrupt sinners in accord with the mercies and the grace of the beloved Son. I want us to notice this. Where does Micah say that the holiness of God is most plainly seen? This is what it means to ask who is like God. It means that God's uniqueness is on display in this. Which means God's holiness is on display in this. What does he point to that demonstrates the holiness of our God? In the forgiveness and the removal of sins. That's what he says plainly. Who is a God like you who forgives us our sins? The psalmist extols the same glory. With you there is forgiveness for sin that you may be feared. The Apostle John delights in the same glory. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son, full of grace and truth. Truth in calling sin, sin. In exposing the works of darkness, grace in cleansing. Grace in forgiving. Grace in adopting. Grace in taking sinners and making them into beloved children. Who is like you, O God? Make no mistake about the heinousness of sin. Make no mistake about what sin rightly deserves. But also make no mistake about the surpassing excellency of our God, who has opened up the fountain of grace and mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. For those who look to Christ in faith, your sins have been thrown into the heart of the sea. This is the glory of our God. This is the one we wait to behold face to face when Christ returns. Wait on him impatient, for he is worthy. Let's pray. Father, sanctify this word unto us. 
what is true press upon our hearts to build us up in faith and hope and love and to establish us in the confidence that you are worthy of worship and the confidence of Christ's work for us and on our behalf and in the truth of your promises that we might stand in hope and trusting ourselves to you for you are worthy of our faith, our hope, and our love. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.